Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrapped SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And hi, I'm Rick. I'm the founder of Leg Up Ventures, which owns and operates software companies that empower underdogs. Last week, we spent the whole episode just giving updates about what we're working on instead of doing like one dedicated deep dive topic for the episode. We're going to do that again this week. Our rhythm going forward is probably going to be a combination of the two. If Rick or I have an interesting topic that we want to spend the whole episode on, we'll bring it up and do a deep dive. Otherwise, we'll just give updates like this. Uh, we're always listening to feedback from our listeners, though. So if you have thoughts on if you prefer one format versus the other, please let us know. And with that, let's get into it. How are you doing this week, Tyler? Pretty good. Yeah. You beat me to it. You beat me to the intro. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go first. <laughs> um, no, things are good. Um, same old, same old. But like we were talking about right before I hit record, uh, got a standing desk. So I'm, you know, new new desk, new me. New beard, new, new you. Yeah, I'm growing it out. I feel like a lot of guys I see are uh, growing out the quarantine beard. Yeah, I'm on like a three-day shave cycle. Yeah. That's as long as Sable let me go. I was surprised Shelly said I was going to shave and Shelly was just like, so I guess you're going to grow it out because we're in quarantine, right? And I'm like, I have no idea why that gives me permission to do this, but great. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. How about you? How have things been with you? It's good. I, I hit my first wall yesterday evening with Leg Up Health where I was like, oh, this isn't going like I expected it to. Um, and I'm not sure, I wasn't planning on talking to you about it today, but I, I was worried about, I worried about it all last night and, uh, didn't sleep well. So I'm a little slow today and graggy, but, uh, I don't know if you ever, do you ever hit the, did you ever along the journey of listening CRM hit those like, oh man, this is not what I expected moments. And it just throws you back. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's different types of them. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd be interested to hear more about yours if you're willing to say it, but I've definitely hit all kinds of moments like that. Mine is a product issue. I mean, it's it's mostly around how hard it is to get someone onboarded uh, on a per user basis. Um, I I've started onboarding everyone onto the software this week, and the amount of time it takes to get someone, you know, a login, get them their policy added, all that kind of stuff, for the benefit that it provides. Uh, was sort of like a man. This is this is not good. And the amount of like the 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 different data sources you need to pull from in order to do this automatically make it very difficult to do it automatically. So um, anyway, I'm 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 I, I'm I'm I have confidence in my ability to work through it. But it was not what I, it was not. This was not the thing I thought was going to be my most challenging thing in May. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You your model has so many unique advantages, but also disadvantages. Like the advantage being, you can make thirty or fifty dollars a month per customer without them spending any money, which is like amazing. But the disadvantage being, nobody in the world wants to spend any time thinking about health insurance. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and including the people in the business. I mean, there's. I, I'm just stunned at how hard it is to. I won't go into the specific details, but imagine that you have one like object of data, let's just call it a policy in this case. Um, and there are four different entities with information about that policy. They all have a different, they don't have a unique identifier across them all about the policy. So mm. you have to like have four different names 
unique identifiers for each of the four data sources and then be able to across all the different health insurance companies and all the different health insurance plans uniquely you know tie data from each source uh, you know to some unifier which means you have to build basically an internal database yeah that match that maps to all these fourth these third you know party databases anyway I um, hate integration projects. Integration projects are the worst thing. A lessening serum. We we only integrate with a few. We have Google, uh, Outlook, and Mailchimp. But these are the worst projects. They have the most bugs because yeah, you have to keep all these mappings in place, and then something happens on the other end that's totally outside of your control. And you're like, well, like it's a bug in Mailchimp. What are we supposed to do about it? But you still have to make it work. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I don't know. I I wish I wasn't so dependent on third party data sources to get the basic portal value proposition I delivered to each user. But I think, I think I'm just going to try to like my, my solution. Let me tell me just tell you what I think I'm going to do. I think what I'm going to do is I've thought about it a lot today. I think what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to trim down what the product does in terms of functionality to the very bare minimum and, um, you know, basically do it manually for the first 50 clients. Um, mm-hmm. And then once I, I think once I get through enough repetitions of that and I spend some more time understanding what the value, the real like value is of each of these things that I've, I've made available, then I can you know, decide whether to invest significantly more time or the, t- the significant more time necessary to uh, automate these things, which, which really is a data project. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense because I realize in the long run, you wouldn't be happy with yourself if you weren't providing a lot of value. But in the short run, because nobody's paying you any money, if if you can make this very little effort on their part, you don't need a huge value prop. You just need to be like, you know, you don't know who your agent is. Make it me. Right. It costs you nothing. So you yeah. might as well. And then you can kind of figure out what the what the value you can provide beyond that is. And it, especially, and I think this is a lesson anyone can take away, you may be wrong. Maybe having their insurance information in there isn't the value that you can provide. And so it'd be a waste of time to put so much effort into that right now. Yeah, totally agree. So yeah, that's probably what I'll do. But it's, it's I you know, it's not, it's it definitely surprised me at how difficult, how, how painful it was. And a lot of it has to do with no, like the no code solution that I'm using, um, so anyway, it's set back, but, but, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, you'll get through it. I I've definitely experienced this type of thing. Not exactly the same. I think you're a little more like dependent on other platforms than me, but I've had that moment where you're working on something and you're like, it's going to be really fucking hard <laughs> to make this good enough for anyone to want to use it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, or, in my case, it's not just good enough, but yeah, I guess it's hard. Hard is the right word. It's like I had I did not budget the time into my model for spending an hour, you know, not an hour, but like spending a significant amount of time per user onboarding them. And then you have to do this every year, every time they add a new policy. No, that's not going to work. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. What about you? What, what's uh, what's keeping you up at night? Um. Nothing like bad. I'm, uh, you know, I think everything I'm working on is going well, but lots of stuff going on. Like I'm probably more, I use email as my to-do list basically. And I snooze stuff that 
I'm, you know, I, I always want one thing in my inbox. That's what I'm working on. Everything else is snoozed. And you can go to your snooze list and see how far down the page does it go. That's a sense of like how behind you are. And for maybe the first time ever or in a long, long time, my snooze list is like I have to scroll to see the bottom of it. Ooh. <laughs> it's a lot of little stuff, but um, one of the big things is interns are starting next week. Uh, it's one of those things where I'm really excited to have them, but this year is not the year you want interns, all else being equal. Like we have to do everything remotely. We kind of had this system figured out for how to do it in person. And we just can't do that. We can't execute that system this summer. Did you say how many are coming? Uh, we have two CRM coaches. We have five devs and then um, four coding fellows. So, wow. So you have 12 people. Yeah. Now the coding fellows, normally I'm heavily involved in the coding fellows. This is for people who don't know what this is. This is like, I teach people how to code. It's like a major time commitment. This year I was like, okay, we will honor, we will pay them. They can do the coding fellowship, but like we're in the middle of a recession. I can't, this is not the time to be like spending my entire summer basically doing philanthropy. Um, So Malia, who's on our team and she kind of Normally, it's like I lead the lessons and Malia is kind of the TA. Malia's taken the whole thing over. They're not going to be integrated into the company the same way they normally are, just out of necessity. So what's more on my mind are the the interns. But we were going to have six coding fellows. Two of them are computer science majors. And we were like, you're not going to get enough value out of it the way we're making the changes. So we switched them to the dev internship. So we were only supposed to have three dev interns. Now we have five. That's a lot. Like just... I have to design enough projects for five people to spend all summer building. Like that's going to take a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you going to have them work on the same project together or are you going to give them five independent, smaller projects? Independent. Um, it's possible. We're not collaborative in that way. Like we're very collaborative in that people talk to each other and ask each other for help and stuff, but nobody ever works really on the same project at Less Annoying CRM. Um, instead, what we do is if it's a bigger project, we'll break it down into component pieces, but there's, it's very rare that you like, I should say a developer can almost always go just do a week or two of work on their own without really needing to interface too much with other people. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but you you got some work to do. I got some, yeah. And I I should say like, as the, the more mature we get, the more other people take off my plate. So like, um, the, the CRM coaches, I have almost nothing to do with them. I have to give like a one hour talk to them and that's my whole commitment. So I'm mostly really the five developers. And even that, like Robert has taken over code reviews, Kelly's taking over mentorship and like, especially peer mentorship. I'm the design and project manager person. So it's, I'm only doing a narrow slice of it, but the whole company's kind of scrambling right now to get ready for like, how do you, how do you do interns remotely? So we're, it'll, it'll be fine, but it's just a new experience for us. Totally. Um, are you, do you feel like, uh, I'm actually, I, I just confirmed I'm bringing on an intern this summer as well for leg up health. Um, oh, congrats. Thanks. Um, I think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she's impressive. She's, a. I don't know. Are your, are your interns all college students? Uh, yes ish. We occasionally we have one that's not, but I think this summer they all are. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's a rising junior. Um, she's at Yale. She's, she's pretty impressive. Um, very interested in startups and in the healthcare space. Um, she actually reached out to me on LinkedIn and, um, 
you know, on behalf of another entity, but, but it ended up working out with leg up health. But the way I'm, it's kind of weird to have a, I don't know when, how big were you when you, when you had your first intern in terms of employees and revenue? So we brought on the four like partners, so two co-founders and then four kind of partner type people. And then that First, when I guess when we hired our seventh full timer, that same recruiting cycle, we hired our first intern. Cool. Yeah. So this is actually like I never actually we hired interns at PeopleKeep, but I was never involved in the internship programs. They're always a marketing department or a customer service department or sales. Um, um, so this is my first time actually like designing an internship. Um, I I think it's really early. Um, so if you're if you're out there and you're an early stage company like Leg Up Health, um, let's just say. Uh, very early on in revenue, maybe even pre-revenue, it can be hard to bring on some, an intern and have them be productive. Um, the way um, I'm approaching this is, one, um, I think uh, this person is uniquely um, motivated uh, and has some ability to um, just get some stuff done um, and help answer questions about the market that um, need to be answered at some point. Um, and so I'm actually, and then the second, so I, I think that I'm, I'm kind of looking at, at this as a, as a research intern, marketing research intern who can help me answer questions about the business today, the market today, and also what, what might happen in the future. Um, I also think, uh, by, I also think that by bringing on an intern, it will sort of hold me account. It's, it's, I'm, this is kind of weird, but I'm, I'm thinking it will actually force me to focus on focus more on leg up health and clarify a couple of, I, I think that it will lead to questions being asked that I should already know the answer to, or have the answer readily available. And it will force me to sort of document the wrong word, but articulate some, some things, some, some important answers about the business um, in order to help uh, the, the intern become productive. And so it's an eight, I'm structuring it as an eight week and in, uh, marketing internship. Uh, it'll be one day a week. Uh, and then, you know, it may kind of flexible in terms of output, but it's centered around questions, you know, about, uh, the business and the market it's operating in and the, the output. Um, I, what, what I've defined as success is, you know, for leg up health is basically, filling in a go-to-market strategy for the first 1,000 clients of Leg Up Health, which is you know, a strategy, not a, not a tactical plan. I want to be very clear. Um, and then also uh, for her, you know, uh, her leaving with a really good understanding of how to um, do, conduct, uh, build a business plan um, and uh, validate uh, hypotheses or ideas uh, with customers. It's a lot to get done in eight days. Eight, eight weeks, sorry. One day a week for eight weeks is eight days. Yeah, um, ooh, I didn't even <laughs> think about that. But I, I, she, I, eight days a week in terms of us working together, like remote, remotely. I think that um, I will work probably to answer some of the questions outside yeah, of those I, eight days. And I think that my, I don't expect her to work more than that. Nor do I expect her really to work that one one day a week. It's an unpaid internship, right? Um, uh, so it's, it, but I, I do think that we'll make a, a good bit of progress on it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But we, we do run into this because our CRM coach interns get 20% time. So one day a week, all our CRM coaches do. If you're a full-timer, you just like projects take a long time, but you can get a lot done. But 
people always want to bite off these really ambitious projects in the summer. And I'm like, do the math here on how, how much actual time you're going to be put in. <laughs> it's not, it's not a huge amount, but yeah, that's, um, a, that's actually a good point. I didn't think about it in terms of eight days, like uh, two days are going to go to onboarding. So two days will go to, you know, she's already sent me a list of like 50 questions about the business, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. Like this is exactly what I wanted. And, and so yeah, probably half of them, I have a, you know, a good answer to right now, how, you know, another five, I can probably spend some time on answering. And then the remaining will be the structure, you know, plus a few of mine will be the structure for her work for the next seven to eight, six, to seven weeks. Yeah. I definitely like your point that, um, this will force you to answer some questions you probably should have had answered anyway. And I, I think there are a lot of analogies to draw between like being a parent and hiring employees. And I think this is one of those, you hear parents say, as soon as, you know, I had my kid, like, it's not just about me anymore. And I kind of have to have a, a bigger picture view of the world. And I think employees kind of do that same thing where it's like, I have to be able to explain why we're doing what we're doing and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's a nice forcing function, I think. The the other thing, the other consideration I took into account was I, I uh, right now I'm, I'm working on the product plus 50 first uh, 50 uh, clients any way I can. And I, I, intentionally put her on a project that will be the next project, you know, getting to 100 and 1000 clients more methodically because um, I didn't want her to f- feel any day-to-day pressure from me moving too fast. Mm. Um, so that was another, like, I don't, if, if you look at an, an intern, I think it can be challenging if you're going, especially if they're part-time um, or more, you know, m- more interested in like strategy, like, working through something strategically. I think if you're, you know, have an urgency around that project, that can be a bad setup um, where you, it could be a, not so much of a fun internship for someone to work on when you're like hammering them for results right away. So I intentionally set something up that was on the backlog that if it got, didn't get done, it wasn't that big of a deal, but if it did, it would massively, it would save me, um, save the business a couple, a month maybe of progress if it, if it does. That makes sense. I like that a lot because one of the big problems I've had with interns, um, especially serum coaches, and we've also hired a handful of hired's maybe the wrong word, but there, there are these like student consulting groups that, as part of their business school classes, will like do a project for businesses, and we've done that a few times. One of the hard things is the reality is a college student spending just a fraction of their time is going to have a hard time doing anything all that valuable. Um, if you say the point of what you're doing is for me to take this six months from now and use it, there's not that moment where before the internship's over where they're like, did I just waste my time here? Yes. <laughs> which is, which is it's, it's not a waste of time. They'll learn a lot. Even if you don't use their work directly, It'll it's still part of the process. But I've had interns start big projects and they're like two weeks away from it being done. And then the internship ends. And they're like, I know that this whole thing was a waste because I didn't finish. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. Yeah, totally exactly. Um what else is going on with you? I had uh, a bit of a breakthrough on well, actually I shouldn't say I did. Probably more Michael who's the head of customer service did, but I was talking to him at the time. So we we collectively had a yeah. I was just going to say this is the opposite of what I just experienced yesterday. Yes, actually. What, like what is. is what is the word for opposite of breakthrough? Like a a wall? Yeah. I hit I a wall. So. You hit a, you're hitting a breakthrough. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. Good um, contrast. It's going to seem like minor when I explain it, but there's two things here. First of all, it's really big because it's it's how we give demos to people. It's a, a part of it, which it's a small part of it, but we do it all the time. We have eight full-time people doing this quite a bit, um, and I'll get into the details in a second. But the second thing I want to point out is what happened is 
we were facing a major constraint in how we do demos. And it looked like our ability to do them without violating security requirements was about to get really difficult because we're switching from, we were using join me as a screen sharing tool to share our screen with customers. We're switching to this tool called demo desk. And um, it's actually pretty neat. Have you heard of demo desk before? I, I don't, I'm not familiar with it. I get the impression it's pretty new. Um, it's more for like sales teams. So it's not like perfect for us in that regard, but what it does is instead of sharing your screen, they load up in a virtual machine on their servers, a web browser, and they stream that to both sides. And so both sides can control it. Um, so you can have the customer, you can say, hey, you go and click things and now I'll click things. And like, it's meant to be a presentation tool. It's not just screen sharing. So you can be like, pull up the slide deck, click through it, switch to this browser window we have up, switch to this other browser window. It's, it's really cool for demos. The problem is, how do you get logged in as a user securely when the, the, the web browser is on DemoDesk servers? We're not going to send plain text passwords to DemoDesk. Um, so we, were, we really wanted to use this tool, but we were like, I don't know if there's a way to do this securely. And we at first hit a wall like you did. And I ran into something that's happened a few times throughout my career, which is the constraints that that imposed on us forced us to rethink the whole process. And we came up with a much, much better demo flow that honestly we should have been using this whole time there's no reason we need to use it with demo desk but this by by having this constraint it forced us to think through things i love it it's it's a micro example of of what i've, I've been we talked about in the past around covid and how like catastrophes for like catastrophes force constraints which force innovation that should have happened before the catastrophe mm-hmm. and it's like you had that on a micro basis with the demo and I, I'm just wondering, like, how do you create these situations so that they happen more often without them feeling like catastrophes, but also having that cons- that cons- that positive constraint constraining effect? Yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking that too because, like, my the the lazy way to do this that doesn't really work is you sit in a meeting with some people and you're like, "What are things that could be better? Like, let's take our demo process. What could be better about it?" And everyone just sits there and is like, uh, "And you know, they give some kind of half-ass answers because no one's thinking like." that creatively because you don't have to yeah and then you go like well let's assume that like the world's gonna end tomorrow and <laughs> you know we have to like come up with a new, you know demo process and everybody's like wait is the world gonna end tomorrow and they get paralyzed yeah yep it's tough <laughs> but um i when this when these things happen it's really it's really valuable and yeah we basically just came up with this flow where what we used to do is someone would book a call with calendly and then we would send the, the thing is we have to verify that the person who books the call is the one we're talking to on the phone. Otherwise someone could book a call with us and be like, share your screen. And then they could get access to some other cut. So we would send them an email before the demo and be like, you need to click this link to verify who you are. And then we'd go into the calendar and mark that they were verified and all this. And we just have a new flow where at the beginning of the call, the CRM coach clicks a button in our backend, which automatically sends an email to the customer. They click a link. It automatically takes them into the right demo desk call. So there's no more like, here's your invite link or anything. It's just like, you got an email, click the link. And we're on the phone with them when this happens. And our customers are super low tech. They don't get how like, you know, Zoom invites and stuff like that work. They click it. In doing it, that generates a link on the CRM coaches side that lets them log in as that user. So they just got permission in the moment. 
And they take that link and copy and paste it into Demo Desk, and it's a one-time link. So the second you use it, it becomes invalid. So there's no security problem. The whole the the user's experience is better, the CRM coach's experience is better, and it's more secure than what we were doing before. So I just feel really good about it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. How do your does your team appreciate the the advance? Like, is it a is this like a a Tyler win or is it like a a coach win? I know Michael's excited about it. We haven't. Um, so I had to do some coding. I spent most of last week like building that auth flow of like click the the link. The there's it's not that complicated, but like it's not something you could do without some custom code. I don't think um, it hasn't been rolled out to anyone except like me and Michael have used it. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm curious okay. to see because it got deployed today. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. It seems like as a coach, this would make it so much easier to help customers mm-hmm. um, and not, it seems like that they would, this would be a big win for them too. Oh my God. The other thing we did with this, that's, that's another big win. So if you have a meeting scheduled in advance, you know, you send them an invite email and that has a link to join the meeting. But if someone calls you, if it's an inbound call, what we would always do is be like, go to joinme.com and then yeah. I'm going to give you a nine digit code and all that. The, the solution we came up with for this, again, has nothing to do with demo desk. We could have been doing this the whole time. It's just the CRM coach says, go to joinlacrm.com and click on my face. My name's Tyler King. Click on Tyler King. And it just takes them to the meeting. So it's like so much easier for everybody involved. <laughs> yep. That's great. And it's yeah. branded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it redirects them to like demodesk.com slash whatever, but we just made this little web page that has each person's face, click on it, it takes you to their link. So there's no more reading codes or URLs or anything like there, that. There's so many things I like about that solution in terms of like making customer service more personable um, and then also, you know, unique experience um, and then ease of use. Like there's yeah. so many good things about that. Putting your face on stuff is so like customers so often comment. They're like, oh, I didn't. Oh, you've got sh-. like, uh, I think probably in a bad way, they're more likely to comment on our, our female employees than male. But they're just like, <laughs> oh, you got a nice smile or whatever. And like, stop being sketchy. But also like, yeah, they, they feel a, a connection to the person. That, you know, I think that's real. Like, um, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. How about you? Uh, oh, I got my first leg up health uh, user referral. Which was interesting. So nice. I had I have nine beta users or had nine beta users. I converted seven of those to actual clients. I've onboarded three of those seven people, no, four of those seven people onto the software, and I'll onboard the rest to uh, this tomorrow. But uh, um, one of the non, so two out of the nine, so uh, of beta users that did not convert to clients are on pl- uh, special plans. One's on a group plan, and one's on a plan that is a really unique situation that I'm not available to be a broker. Like I can't be a broker of, um, but that person, because I helped, even though they didn't go through like health or buy a plan that like health could help with, um, I helped them and they're going to be using the software for the digital insurance cards, even though I'm not the broker. Um, and so they, that person referred uh, a look, one of their friends who due to COVID-19 is switching jobs and is going from group health insurance to need to purchase individual health insurance. And uh, it's a perfect, like, uh, you know, call. I had a 25-minute, situ- what I'm calling a situation assessment call. And uh, the next step is for them to look through some of the tools that that I've sent them. And once they, you know, once we get to picking a plan, um, it'll be, there'll be a client as well. 
I'm pretty awesome. 90% sure they're going to uh, be my eighth client. That's very cool. So, so you had not yet, I know at one point we talked about, you should try to like go, you know, get referrals proactively. That didn't happen here. This just fell into your lap. No, this, this, this was just someone complaining to one of my users about a problem that I had helped that user with. And it's just like a quick text introduction. That's awesome. I mean, I realize it's like hard to extrapolate with like such a small sample size, but that's a lot better than not getting that referral. I mean, right now you've got a 10%, better than 10% in a month referral rate. That's awesome. Without asking, right? So it's it's yeah. a, it's one of those little things that just makes your day better. Um, so that was a good sign. I'll just go ahead and go to the next one real quick. Uh, the, um, I don't, have you ever studied like Warren Buffett's work or Charlie Munger's work? Do you, are you familiar with I who like, those people are? Yeah, the f- founders of uh, Berkshire Hathaway or the uh, yeah. people in charge anyway. Um, I, d- I like when their letter comes out every year, I read snippets and stuff, but I wouldn't say I'm like well read on them. Yeah, so Warren Buffett is most of the brand of Berkshire Hathaway in terms of if you've read, if you followed Berkshire Hathaway, you followed Buffett, you've probably read a lot about Buffett. You've read a lot about his wisdom. Um, Charlie Munger is his sort of quiet partner, but he's not so quiet actually. So I discovered a couple of talks he's given. Um, he's also written a book called, he's a big fan of Ben Franklin. Um, but anyway, he, he's written a, you know, old, old Charlie's almanac kind of emulating his idol, Ben Franklin, but he, um, you know, he's very, he uses very big words and very dense sentences to describe his thinking. And it's very brilliant, but he's written, um, uh, you know, he's written a paper, but he's also given a talk on 24 or 25 um, psychological tendencies we have that cause misjudgment. Um, so the, the, it's the, the human psycho, uh, psychological tendencies of misjudgment. And basically, you know, he, he, he rants for an hour and a half through t- 24 ex- you know, tendencies ranging from, um, you know, the tendency to uh, reciprocate to the tendency to, you know, like, and then turn that turn into love, uh, the tendency to dislike and that turn into hate. Like there's all, there's 24 of them, but there, it's, it's incredible. Um, and it's discovering him sort of helped me add another dimension to my leadership research, which is not, not only does a good leader need to have pretty good control over their own emotions and, and, and such, but they also have, you know, and be able to build teams, but good decision-making rational decision-making is so important for to be a good leader and mm-hmm. um, or at least the, I shouldn't say good. I should say the ideal leader that I'm for, you know, forming in my head. And uh, I think like I've stumbled upon some like very, like it's very, it's not something you just like read once and go, Oh, that made total sense. But like, if I can, if, if I can learn from what he's learned over his 90 plus years and, and written down and, you know, relatively, you know, short, um, you know, simple 25 tidbits. Um, I think it will really help me as a leader make better decisions, but I, reading it right away, I'm like, Oh, yep. I fall, I fall, you know, for that tendency pretty much nightly. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. one's an availability tendency. Have you heard of the availability? Ten- what do you think that's about? I've, I've heard of the, isn't the availability bias is a thing I think, yes, but, yeah. um, I probably couldn't explain it well. Uh, so let's, it, you can apply it to a, diff- a couple of different situations. Uh, f- for purposes of like your personal like eating habits, you're much more likely to eat something that's on the counter and available to eat, uh, whether it's good or bad for you, whether you're hungry or not. 
um, just its availability makes you more likely to consume it. Um, p- applying that to business, um, he, he used you know, Berkshire Hathaway was pretty big. Uh, uh, I think it was at one point in time, the largest shareholder of Coke, uh, Coca-Cola. Um, and Coke, for example, um, the part of their big branding strategy was was taking advantage of the availability tendency or the availability bias. Always be available. Yeah. And if you think about it, like wh- wh- no matter where you are in the U.S., if you are anywhere near civilization, um, you can probably walk to a place and buy a Coke. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Cool. So anyway, that's, I'm, I'm the... excited about that and I'm working through is there, it. And... Is there more reading? Like now that you're hooked on Charlie Munger, are you like, I'm going to go read this other book or whatever? Eh, his book is like 60 bucks. So I don't know if I want to buy that. Um, if I, I, I think for now, I'm just going to focus on this one area because it falls within the research that I'm doing. But um, I, he's definitely someone that when I see his name, I will be more like, I will recognize it now. And I'll click on it and see what he has to say. Um, I had no idea how wise this guy was. Hmm. Cool. Um, final thing for me uh, on my list is I. So last week I mentioned that I'm considering moving our whole marketing site over to Webflow, and uh, someone tweeted at me, Cody Duval. Shout out, Cody, uh, listener of the show, that was like gave me some suggestions that had actually been on my mind, but he kind of helped me think through it a little bit. So A, it's very cool that like anyone listens to this and that that actually turned into a valuable interaction. But um, B, this also has me thinking about the point he brought up, which is I need to figure out how to get the content from my site into Webflow. But a bigger question, or maybe not bigger, but like another question is how do how do analytics work? Um, and I was thinking about maybe doing a deep dive topic with you on this at some point, but maybe just quickly we can skim the surface of it, which is like, I'm used to having a totally homegrown analytics and attribution system where, for example, I built years ago my own system that's like, I can generate a link. And then if, let's say you're going in and making an AdWords campaign or you're partnering with a conference and they're going to recommend you as part of a sponsorship or whatever, whatever the source of the traffic is, it's a custom link. Anyone who comes through that gets labeled as coming from that source and then when they sign up, they get linked to that. And then when they pay, they get linked to it so that we have kind of have the whole pipeline mapped out with no third-party analytics, really. Um, it's it's really great in a lot of ways. Like It's way more uh, integrated and holistic than if you're like combining the other 15 different third-party tools. It's not great in the sense it's not flexible. A marketer can't go in and be like, I'm going to go. They can make new sources and stuff, but they can't add a new thing to the stack and be like, well, based on if they came from this source, I want to send them a different drip email. They can't do that type of thing. So anyway, all that to say, I'm trying to figure out what level of validation should I do on this to make sure that switching to Webflow will actually work for me. In terms of your custom analytics platform? Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming probably my either my custom analytics platform is going to get thrown out and we're going to switch to a third-party system or maybe a hybrid approach where it's like, we can still generate links and th- just hypothetically, they could go to a custom web page I make, which then redirects them to our marketing site with some UTM parameters or something. And then from there, it can get tracked with third-party tools. I'm not I, I, I'm not sure. I haven't put a huge amount of thought into this, but I don't know what like a standard non-technical founder who needs to set this stuff up, what do they do for analytics? 
I don't think many people do analytics well. I think that's just the first thing to acknowledge. I think you're in, you've, you've from the very beginning built your analytics sort of product first backwards to the marketing site. And so you haven't had to deal with a lot of the complications that come from a separate one marketing team using analytic tools, another product team using not really caring about analytics. Um, and, and so you've sort of bridged that gap being the type of person you are and, um, and the founder that you are. Um, I don't know what Cody's exact, like, what was, can you remind me what his exact point was? Like, was it cross domain tracking, how difficult that gets? Yeah. Attribution gets tough. Um, and honestly, I mean, whether it's cross domain or not, it's still like at some point someone's going from this third party website you don't control into your app. Cody said he uses Google analytics and mix panel for this. One quick side note here, things like Mixpanel are so hard to switch to at my stage. If you start when you're like where you are, it would be, you know, $10 a month or free or something. And then it gradually builds up. If I switch to it right now, it'd be like $5,000 a month or something. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not paying that right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard to like HubSpot's the same way. I just, I cannot afford HubSpot. For the, for the number of contacts you have too, like it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so what do you, um, I mean, it seems like Google analytics would be fine and it's free, but it does come with its challenges on like tracking across multiple domains. Yeah. Well, or like forget to forget domains though. Like let's say I tried to put it in my current domain right now, marketing site products, both www.lessoningserum.com. Like, does it do tracking where you say this person just paid us? Like, how do you yeah, they have link goals. together? They have events and goals that you can set up. Now, it how could be a whole different session by the time they pay? Yeah, does it connect sessions together? I'm not. Gonna, <laughs> this is this is an example of like I don't I don't profess to be an analytics person. Um, yeah, I I, I, I don't know. Okay, answer. so I'm about to say something, and my gut is you're going to tell me this is crazy and stupid, and I shouldn't do it. But let me just see. Like my instinct here is to say. I can build this like I can build I can keep more or less what I have and just say when the users on Webflow, I don't control the back end of Webflow, but I can put cookies in the client that I can read from my own back end and I can build my own JavaScript library to do. I'm not saying I wouldn't use Google. I, I currently use Google Analytics also, but it's just not plugged into all this other stuff. I can do attribution tracking, link it to the person signing up and use all my current reporting on this. Is that a bad idea because the whole point of this project is to get away from my code being what powers this. I, I mean, I put analytics in a different bucket, honestly. Um, I don't, to my knowledge, there isn't, I mean, listen, if there was, I don't think you're moving to Webflow for analytics. You're moving to Webflow for content management and CMS. So you kind of like got to pull analytics out and it's not like there's a analytics. It doesn't seem like there's a CMS, an analytics version of a CMS out there that you can just go plug in. And if there were, you'd probably plug it in. So if that's not the case, and it seems like this is the type of thing that you should have a custom solution for. And I, and I honestly lean towards what, you know, you keeping what you have working right now from a his, historical perspective. Hmm. Um, it's not a problem perspective. Um, you know, and it's, you know, I, I analytics historically for me has been so difficult that it's one of those things that's like, don't mess, like don't, don't open that can of worms. I do kind of get that impression that Webflow solves the content problem very, very well. I, I don't hear people talking about analytics like, oh, solved, it's great. One thing you said, though, like there's not an analytic CMS thing. I do think A-B testing would be really nice. So I have my own A-B testing framework, too. Of course, I built everything, right? Because that's how I was 10 years ago. Um, 
it would be nice if a non-technical marketer could run an A-B test, but that that would be easy if like Google Analytics is how we're tracking goals. You just, I assume they integrate together. It's not trivial. I don't know what the tools are, Optimizely or whatever, to get that to link to this A-B test. I, I hate A-B tests that are like, we're going to just A-B test this page and see who converts and then stop. You need to see who pays at the end of that process, I think. That's the hard thing about analytics, like yeah. getting to the well, actual... right now it works. Right now yeah. I do this, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, okay. and, and that was the biggest challenge is, they, you know, HubSpot's big uh, value proposition at the time I was looking at this was full, you know, what do they call it? Uh, full cycle revenue reporting or something like that, where you could, you could track someone from a visit to the website all the way to a closed opportunity for a B2B company. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very difficult to pull that off in practice. Um, because you had to have all the data syncing up and then it, it just, it wasn't as easy, it, even with one platform that was claiming to do all the things, it was not easy to pull off uh, consistently. Okay. Uh, that's, that's interesting here. One final thing. So forget converting to the website and this and that we're doing something right now where we're trying to get people to convert to a newsletter sign up form. And we're trying to do it all with like no code, none of my custom analytics stuff. So someone clicks an ad, we know the source, right? Cause we, it's an ad. They hit a page and then they sign up for an email form. Do you have a sense of what you would use to just track that? Like, I want to be able to go into the email and say, what what conversions did I get? So Hotjar, I just set up for Leg Up Health, works pretty great for that type of thing. Um, it's free. You could set it up just for that particular thing and test it. Google Analytics also would solve that problem. How do you get the Google Analytics data into the email platform, though? What do you mean the email platform? Well, like I'm imagining... Well, is a form completion, right? I, I want to know, like, how does Google Analytics know that a goal was completed when, because they get taken off of our site when they convert? It's ta- you use tags. So, like, you set up, like, I think it's ID using uh, HT, not HTML, but whatever, CSS, HTML IDs. Um, mm-hmm. And you basically tag the button. If they click the button. If okay. they click the button. Yeah. Um, and then Google Tag Manager, I think, makes this pretty no codish. Yeah. If you have Google Tag Manager installed on the website, so a non-code person could set a lot of those goals up without editing any uh, any sort of like header or body tags. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, I may I'll probably look into this, and then if I hit a wall, we'll do a deep dive topic on it. But either way, Cody, thanks for bringing this up. It's on my mind now. I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, and I and I'm and I can't. I'm sorry, I can't help you more. I wish I, if you learned stuff on this, please share it because it's a, it's a blind spot for me. Yeah. Cool. All right. That's it for me. You got anything else? Uh, the only thing I'd, I'd uh, say is um, I'd, I've, I, when I first, I wasn't a great community player in at, at Zane Benefits and People Keep, primarily because part of, I was very aggressive in terms of how we came to market and a lot of the, there wasn't exactly a community to go to for, to be accepted by. So we were pretty much anti like established community, but since then, and since coming into you know the last year, I've, I've sort of u- started getting into more involved in communities. Inter- Indie hackers is one online community with group current. We started a, a community called Panda labs, um, you know, and then I've joined several others like MakerPad, which is a no code community. Um, and I'm, I just sort of had a, in the last couple of weeks, I sort of had a, just a mind shift on communities where I really, I'm just starting to get them and both virtual communities and in-person communities. And yeah, I think I had a warped sort of mindset around 
thinking that a community had to be perfect in order to be involved with it. Um, and that I had to like know everyone in order to like get the most out of a community, you have to know everyone in the community. You have to attend all the events. It's like a, all I, I saw a community sort of as, as all or nothing mm-hmm. and something just switched recently where I, you know, over the last year I've signed up, I've, I've become members and involved in d- different capacities with seven or eight different communities. Some most, most with a virtual component, but some that are in person. And I've just sort of like just had this epiphany where it's like at the end of the day, I, you're, you can be a, a involved in a community, as many communities as you want to. And it works as long as, you know, what you're putting in and what you're getting out and what you're giving back line up in a mutually beneficial fashion. And so it's sort of uh, given me a lot more flexibility in how I view my participation in communities and contributions to them. And then also you know, sort of, t- you know, ask, ask from them. And uh, I don't know, I, don't, I, I, in the past, I just felt like I couldn't, sort of have my cake and eat it too with communities. Yeah. Cool. So does this change anything for you going forward? Do you feel like you're at the right equilibrium with your community involvement? You're getting what you need? Nowhere near what I could, what I can do. I, there's so much more for me to give. There's so so much more for me to take. Um, there's, uh, less, I, I, you know, there's less for me to feel guilty about. Um, I, it's just, uh, there's probably more communities that I could get involved with, honestly. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I just more, most of it's not a time issue. It's more of like a where you're spending your time in a community. So for example, take a, take a community like Panda Labs. There's 160 people in there. I, you know, in the past would have thought that I need to know all 160 people, right? Because I'm a part of that yeah, community. Yeah. No, like there's it, the value of a community could be 10 awesome relationships that through that community you build over the course of a year or three. And th- that's awesome. And the, the reason that you came together with those relationships was the community, just like the Duke, you know, the Duke community creates, created lots of relationships in college and still does for me. Um, yeah. And so it's, I look at it communities now sort of as like, first and foremost, these relationship creators. And it's, um, it's some, you know, I think the size of the community um, there's probably doesn't matter. It's probably per community. You're, if you're trying to get more than, five or 10 solid relationships out of a community, it's probably, you're probably expecting too much out of the community. Yeah. Yeah. I have a very pure version of this um, from maybe a few years ago where there was, I forget how I got tuned into it, but somebody started a Slack community for bootstrappers and I joined it and there were a few hundred people in it, but like five of us talked a lot. And I don't even know how I was one of the five, but I just, I think it was that the guy who started it, I happened to be up in the middle of the night and he was too. And then all of a sudden, like you have one connection. Um, and then the, the community since then has shut down, but I'm still like mutual, mutually we follow each other on Twitter with, you know, five or six people or something like that. And like, yeah, they're, I've never met them in person, but they're almost like friends now, despite the fact that the community is completely gone now. Totally. I think that's right. There is a perfect example of the value of a community. I didn't see that before. I thought it was something different. Uh, I can't explain what I thought it was very well, but that is what it should be. And I think if you can go into communities with that mindset of, I'm going to, a community is worth being part of. If I care about what it's trying to do, number one, and the, like the, the reason for being to get, bringing people together. And two, I can develop some, you know, five solid relationships. Great. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked before about like a common failure mode with this is, too many people go into these thinking, 
well, I'm, I'm writing a book on this topic and I'm going to use this community to promote the book. I'm like that. I don't want to say it never works, but like, it's not fun. You need to go in there. Like I, I have no agenda here other than to meet people and make connections, make some friends. Yeah. Cool. And, and the other thing is like, I think I, the, the, the counterpoint to this is just because you only find five relationships out of 2000 people in a community doesn't mean the community sucks. Like that's actually a really good ROI on a community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, that's, that's it for me. Do you have anything else? Um, no, I don't think I do. Cool. Oh, well, actually, yes, I do. I was talking to my dad. He listens to this podcast and always we, he calls me and we talk about it and he gives me all the uh, things we could be doing better. Um, awesome. <laughs> he, he gave a suggestion. We don't have to do this if you don't want, but let's try it this week. What are you going to get done n- next week? Ooh, <laughs> man. Um, well, I, I got to get uh, the intern onboarded. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I need to get permission to mention her on this before I can say her name. But so I'll just call her the intern. Um, but so I got to get her onboarded. There's a lot of questions I got to answer there. I've got to get past this wall, which means probably trimming my um, my my MVP. Uh, and then I'd like to start start um, reaching out to prospective customers all in the next, you know, before the next podcast. Cool. What about you? A lot, a lot on your plate. A lot of little stuff, but I think the kind of bigger type project that I, well, we have interns starting on Wednesday. So at that point, I'm not going to do anything, but hopefully before then, I'm trying to break the Webflow project into smaller parts because it's just too big thinking of it as a monolith. So I want to decide what I'm doing with the help site. That's going to be the first thing. Either get a standalone knowledge base tool, or even if I'm going to do it in Webflow, I could move the whole help site over now move it at like help.lessoningserum.com or something, and then gradually port the rest of the site over over time. So I want to at the very least know, like have tested this out, validated how everything works and know what the plan is for that. That's awesome. I, I was thinking that uh, while you're talking that we should also at some point do a check-in on our annual goals. Um, not not today, mm. but that'd be interesting. I, I was just thinking like, oh man, I said I was going to play more, but I haven't played basketball in like two months. Well, uh, nobody saw <laughs> COVID-19 happening. Yeah, mine was like, I had all these growth goals and it's like, well, we were down $30,000 in ARR from last month. So <laughs> Maybe it's a goal a goal reflection and resetting uh, conversation. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a unique year to have to look at six-month goals, but yes, yeah. it would, we should do that sometime. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll see you next week, man. All right. See you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have two favors to ask. First, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com.